Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. And now another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. That doesn't sound good. Paper shredder's jammed, but I think I fixed it. Oh, well, try shredding these $50 bills then. Seems like it's working. Mm, better try another 400 bucks. Stop. Instead of using money, use regular paper. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? Not just bikes. We also make a rower. Have you ever tried to row? Too hard. Not with Form Assist. It actually teaches you how to row. So it doesn't matter if you're a first-time rower or a seasoned pro. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Row risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Welcome once more to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis, and each week we'll strive to bring you a cornucopia of musical delights. The podcast is split into several chunks. We have Way Back Then, which is an archive of interviews from exactly that, Way Back Then. There's Insider Insights, which is stories from industry insiders who worked behind the scenes and have some great stories to tell. There's a Mank and the Yank, a fireside chat with me and my partner in crime, Steve Glum. And then I've got another thing I think I'll introduce called Tone Alone, which is a few of my own stories. The object is to entertain you throughout the 30 to 40 minutes, unless, of course, we overrun. So without further ado, welcome to episode three of Moments That Rock. Amazing, episode three, and we haven't been summoned to the headmaster's office yet. In episode two, you heard a 1986 interview that I conducted with the Cramps, namely Lux Interior and Poison Ivy. Uh, we had some great stories from BBC veteran broadcaster Mark Radcliffe, and we had the Mank and the Yank. Today, we have a uh, one of the most gifted and talented entertainers, stroke performers, stroke musicians, artists, etc. of our time, one Steve Winwood, and we're going to start this moment's that rock with an interview I did with him in the 80s in the Way Back Then feature. What we also have for the podcast is quite a lot of U2 stuff dating to right back to the very beginning. And we're going to play the first one, an interview with a gentleman called Neil Storey. Again, another colleague of mine in the late 70s at Ireland who was responsible for uh, the initial press and the buzz on the band. It was all regional promotion, radio and all press that started the ball rolling. But he'll tell you all about that. But we do have some great U2 stuff to come over the coming weeks, like the story of Red Rocks with Malcolm Gary, who will introduce the podcast next week. But I won't confuse you too much because uh, just listen to what you're going to get this week and come back for more in Moments That Rock. Way Back Then is a regular feature every week on Moments That Rock. And this one is the great Steve Winwood. 
Steve Winwood began his illustrious career at the age of 14 in the Spencer Davis Group. Had a number one record at 15 between 1997 and 2017, released nine studio albums. His joining Spencer Davis Group began as a 14-year-old in 1965. Until 1967, he helped form Traffic. Since that time, Traffic split up. He went to Blind Faith for a very short time. Uh, then it was Ginger Baker's Air Force, 1970. Then an amazing event at Madison Square Gardens in 2009 with um, Eric Clapton himself. So, my thrill, my pleasure to um, take you back to 1988 when I did this interview with Steve Winwood. <laughs> you really? One, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. Well, I'm still delighted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well... I'm delighted to be in the company of uh, one, <laughs> one Mr. Steve Winwood, who is uh, currently about to release his uh, latest product with his brand new record label. Steve, welcome to uh, the program. First of all, let me ask you um, the obvious question, I suppose, that you've been asked, you've been asked all day. Um, your first record for Virgin Records and the final split from Island Records, is there any particular reason? Well, um, you know, it was... Uh, I'd just finished my last... Um, um, album on my contract and um, and um, you know I felt it was time for me to look around and to um, you know look out for myself I suppose and uh, uh, so um, you know I, it's strange because a lot of people kind of see it as you know as uh, I, th I think a, a lot of people feel that it, it was more intimate relationships and it actually was really I mean I, I kind of see it like you know it's like kind of like changing insurance companies or something you know it's it's not really I mean Ireland were, were never excluded from the deal you know they uh, I, I, I um, you know I had, to, I had to look around and see what other people could do for me and uh, um, Ireland weren't prepared to do for me what Virgin uh, could and also, you know, Virgin is strong in in Europe, and um, and um, you know, America is really my biggest market. So, you know, I felt that Virgin could do a lot for me. Um, hopefully, do help me to reach more people. You know, in Europe. You you, you say America is important for you, but you didn't, nevertheless, with Island Records, have an enormous amount of success with Ark of a Diver in the States, didn't you? I mean, was it a particularly bad moment for for Chris Blackwell? Was it a bit of a shock for him when you left? Well, as I say, I I didn't I didn't particularly set out with the idea of leaving. I mean, it wasn't, you know, and he was consulted on every move you know i said well look i'm gonna have a look around and see what other record companies can do for me and you know um you know and and he uh you know he he was he couldn't do as much for me as virgin basically and uh you know it, i didn't feel that there was any real sourness about it because you know the, the thing is that you know although ireland uh, you know, it's easy to 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 see Ireland as being not like uh, not like EMI or CBS. That it's more of kind of family kind of thing and the way they look after you. But but really, when you when you look at how you they treat you on paper, it's just like EMI or CBS treats you. So 
you know, it it was it was just a, um, I, I didn't I didn't particularly leave because I was I was desperately unhappy with the way I'd been treated. You know, it wasn't that at all. It was just I felt there was a better opportunity for me, and so I went and got got a better. Uh, you know, went and took. I mean. You know, just in the same way that I'm sure Ireland would look after themselves in a similar situation, you know. I suppose if you look on the positive side, I mean, the likes of yourself, Palmer and Marley, who for one reason or another aren't with the label any longer, you were in many ways the old Ireland, and now they're progressing in with the new acts as well. So if you look on the positive side, I mean, you've got a young, exciting setup in America with Virgin now, haven't you? That's right, yeah, because, I mean... Uh, in a way, it's, it's a bit of a risk because, uh, for some reason, it's very hard for record companies to to set up an independence, um, which you know they're really not independents in America, they, but because it, it's impossible for independence, but it seems to take a long time for any record company, aside from any of the majors, to actually get get going. It's you know it took like Geffen Records, you know, twelve years before they started to have success and everything. So. I mean, it is, you know, quite a considerable risk, really, on on my part. Um, you might say it's a considerable risk on their part as well, but, but uh, you'd probably say that. I don't know. No, but um, it's you know, it is a risk. So, but um, you know, it's one that I'm prepared to prepared to do, and 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 seeing their performance so far on um, on other. On, in America, on other records, they've been doing very well. They've had a number one, one single, and you know, so you know, they seem to have got established very quickly. I suppose when you when you talk about America and, and version, are you talking particularly of somebody like Peter Gabriel? Um, I'm sorry. What do you mean? Uh, well, I mean the su the success that Virgin have had with um with Gabriel. Oh no, Gabriel's not on Virgin in America. Oh no, no, he's not. <laughs> no, he's on. Uh, Welcome to the program, Steve. <laughs> he's on. He's on Gaffin. You see, it's to say because they Virgin only just set up. You see, a lot of the people that are on Virgin here, like see, Phil Collins is not on Virgin either in America. He's on. I forget what he's on. I, I can't remember, but it's definitely not Virgin, you know. Uh, it's, I mean, I, I'm actually, I think I'm one of, I was one of the first people that signed worldwide with Virgin because, you know, until I signed, they didn't really have a record company in 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 the US. And, you know, and, and, and a lot of the, you know, established artists wouldn't go with them because, uh, um, because that, you know, as what I was saying about being a new company, you know, like I'd, you know, Collins or Gabriel probably wouldn't do that. I don't know, you know, but I mean, I don't know that for certain. But you know, they might think think very carefully about it. But uh, you know, it's a risk I, I was prepared to take. With um with a new label and things, I, was, I suppose the messy side of things, i.e., sorting out deals and things, of the man of your stature and long standing in this business, has other people to take care thing of stuff like that. I mean, does this give you like a rejuvenated enthusiasm that, that you might have lost over the last few years? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and of course, the success of the last album was has been, I mean, you know, I've just, um, I, a couple of days ago, I celebrated my 40th birthday, you know, with, with, um, with my manager who fell asleep on the plane. Uh, but, um, 
so uh, you know at that point in your life to have the most successful album is you know is fantastic and i'm also you know happy. sorry is that your most successful album today yeah um the um uh, back in the high life yeah i'm oh, sorry i thought you were talking about chronicles no i'm sorry okay no you i mean you're, you're quite right chronicles was the last album but of course that was you know, I tend to think of that as not being because that was a compilation. It was a kind of a, you know, that was old stuff. I suppose we should point out it was a compilation with your approval. It wasn't a record company cashing in because you did make yourself available to to do necessary promotion around it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, on the and it, I think it's, it's the same with uh, with most people that do uh, you know sign record deals. You have usually at the end of your deal, the record company can issue a compilation you know they have the right to issue and i mean they could have done that anyway but they they uh, you know i was lucky enough to be able to work with them on on what went on it and i remixed a few things and uh, so you know it was uh, it was it was a happy arrangement you know uh, but anyway not chronicles but um, back in the high life was yeah was was the biggest album i've ever had so you know, it's it, it's obviously, uh, you know, affected. I mean, it's had a great effect on, on me, and uh, you know, and I've really been busy ever since then, going doing one thing or another in America, and you know, rushing around. Um, so, but uh, uh, I think it's you know the main. I think one of the reasons for it was was that. Before that, I, I I came to the conclusion that I was really, or I, sh I should say, I accepted the fact that I was an entertainer, and I think all the time before then, I've been I've been under the impression that I was an artist, and that an artist can't be an entertainer, you know, um, and it suddenly dawned on me that if you go around singing songs for people, you're an entertainer, whether you like it or not, you know, and I mean a lot of people, it's it's kind of a you know. It, it conjures up visions of you know Bob Hope or something, you know, being an entertainer, or that or that chap that does the broken chord on the microphone we were talking about. But um, no, but you know, really, you know, it, I came to terms with the fact that you know whatever, whatever however you look at it, you enter, you're, you're entertaining. And I kind of came up through you know music as a as a musician, like from from being a musician, which might sound, um, I mean, it might sound as if I'm stating the obvious, but I mean, a lot of people do come up from other areas, you know, like David Bowie from, you know, theatre, and and uh, uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I had to work, really, you know, I do have to work at the entertainment side, and, you know, being a personality kind of thing, because, um, uh, because it's, I just have to work at it, but you know it's it's a funny challenge, and uh, and it's a good. Uh, and I think as soon as I accepted that, then things just started getting better. And so be it. Part one of the Steam Wimwood way back then. Part two will be with you in a few weeks. Way back then is part of Moments That Rock, where we dig deep into the archives, dust them down, and deliver them. More archive interviews next week. Funny when you hear things like that from so long ago, it doesn't half trigger a few memories. So here's what I'll share with you about that interview. 
I worked with Steve Winwood around his last album for Island uh, Chronicles. We took him on a promo tour. Really liked the guy. Had a curry with him. Had a good natter. Asked him about all those traffic years and what drugs he was taking. Well, I saw those album sleeves, which is great when you kind of... Uh, you know, my story, I always say, is about working with people whose records I'd bought as a kid. So to have Bowie in my first programme and then Steve Winwood in this is really quite... Um, well, humbling on the one part, but also quite... Uh, there's a certain amount of affection there because it does take you back to a time and a place. So here was the situation. Winwood had signed to Virgin... Uh, sorry, signed to Virgin Records after a career in Ireland, which included the Spencer Davis group. And he um, he was asked, obviously, to do a lot of promotion. Richard Branson was floating the company because he wanted to buy his airline uh, and raise money. And Winwood had a number one album in the States. Like he said, it was his uh, most successful album to date. Um so they wanted him to do some stuff. So this was for, uh, there was this interview and then and then something that I did for MTV Europe because Winwood would only do one interview and it was with me. So on the one hand, I was flattered. On the other hand, I thought, oh, well, what are we going to do? So what happened was uh, the record company, Virgin Records, their European, their international department sent me a bunch of questions, which was like from Virgin France, Virgin Italy, Virgin Spain. And I was supposed to be asking him all these questions as well as other stuff. And... I got on the train going down, and I read these questions, and it was like, were the swinging 60s as swinging as they were made out to be? In other words, what was your favourite traffic record? And obviously, knowing how these things work, an artist goes out to promote his latest product, his latest release, not to talk about things that were really way back, way back then. So it made me giggle and stuff. And um, if you remember the album Roll With It, or if you haven't seen it and you check it out, it's got um like a, a sleeve with this white kind of silky shirt on and he kind of looks the part. He looks like a kind of superstar, you know. So I go down on the train and I go to a place called the Halcyon Hotel in Kensington, which is a really nice posh hotel. And Virgin laid on all the stuff. They put the sandwiches out, got some wine, got some coffee. And all the heads of department were there and everything. And um, they were all kind of, you know, mingling and, and doing their bit. And they hired a suite for the interviews. Uh, and this girl came to meet me in the lobby. The name escapes me. Uh, and we get in the elevator and go up. And uh, we walk into the room. And the first thing I see as I walk to the room to the left is Steve Winwood. <laughs> and the first thing I said was, have you not got another fucking shirt? Because as I looked at him, he had the same white shirt on that he had in the album sleeve. Oh, my God. You should have seen the looks on their faces, the uh, the hierarchy from Virgin, thinking, oh, my God, what have they said to our superstar artists? Of course, Steve giggled. Um, so we sit down to do the interview, and you can tell by the kind of feel of the interview that we kind of, well, dare I say, got on, and we had a good laugh, because we'd enjoyed some time together. And um, so I sit down very serious for the interview. We position the mics, check the levels and stuff, and then I look him in, in the eyes and I say, Steve, as an artist, would you rather be played at 33 and a third or 45 <laughs> of course he pisses himself laughing uh, we went out for a curry afterwards and it was a really good day but just listening back um to that interview from 1988 with steve winwood i just thought i'd share that with you there's a whole bunch of rock stars who work behind the scenes and they have some great stories Insider Insights takes you inside their world for their stories and their rock star moments. And today's Insider Insights is a Mr. Neil story, an ex-colleague of mine from Ireland in the 70s. Neil, 
ran the press office with Rob Partridge, and they did an amazing job on you two right from the very beginning. Over the coming weeks on Moments That Rock, we'll be delving into a little bit of history from you two, because there's plenty of people that I know that work with them. Um, Malcolm Gary, who you heard on the programme the other week, he was the guy responsible for putting together a team in conjunction with Paul McGuinness, their manager, and flying over to film what became Under Blood Red Sky, the famous Red Rocks concert. And that's a moment in rock history, so I'd love you to uh, kind of come back and listen to that. There's going to be plenty of you two over the coming weeks. Uh, hopefully you'll like them. If not, it's a great history lesson, so check it out. But um, they'll all be advertised and promoted, and you'll be able to find out. And the great thing about this is that I thought it was a good idea to kind of keep segments to, 15, uh, to 10, 15, at the most 20 minutes, so that there's not enough really to get bored if, for instance, you don't like that particular artist or that particular insight or that particular way back then. So that way we keep the whole Moments That Rock podcast moving. So that's it for now. We'll take you to the insights of Neil's story as he talks about the very, very early days with you two. It all actually begins with a guy called Bill Graham. Bill Graham was a writer for the Hot Press. The Hot Press was an incredibly important magazine. It was the only music-related magazine in Ireland at that time. Bill, amongst a number of writers, was a good chum of Rob and mine. Rob and I ran the press office at Ireland at that time. He'd bang on and on and on about this little band that he'd found. He'd seen them, uh, he liked them a great deal. He'd hooked them up with Paul McGuinness, who was, who'd become their manager, and he was trying to get Rob and I to go and see them. And what with one thing and another, something got in the way, there was never an opportunity to go, you know what, I'm just gonna take a flight to Dublin. And you know, it was a bit of an expense in those days to be truthful about it. And if I think either of Rob or I had been really, really, really into it, then uh, we'd have had to get permissions from this person, from that person. It was certainly more than my, at that time, credit card could could kind of manage. You know, a weekend away in Dublin to go and see a band that I kind of, I'd never heard any of their music. and But Bill was somebody that we knew a lot and we trusted a great deal. And Rob had also met in a previous life. He'd met McGuinness. Various journalists started kind of talking to us They'd either been over to to Ireland or they'd seen or they'd heard. And so there was a kind of a rumble going on about this little Irish band. And then uh, we knew that they'd been signed to a singles deal to CBS in Ireland. A guy called Chaz Diwali was part and parcel of that. And we'd also heard through the grapevine that Chaz wanted them to sign to... CBS on a on certainly a European deal through CBS in London. CBS in London weren't that keen for whatever reasons. The U2 123 um, EP had come out. We had, or I certainly had a copy of that. And things were beginning to kind of bubble. That's the easiest way of explaining it. And then next year as he was then Bill Stewart, Captain Bill, he uh, had heard, and he'd kind of hang out in our 
office as well. So we'd kind of pool ideas and there were various other bands around that he was getting interested in. He'd recently arrived as our A&R guy and there was a lady called Annie Rosebury who was also key to the whole thing. And she'd also heard. And so, you know, we, our fingers, I'd like to think, were kind of somewhat on the pulse. Anyway, what with one thing and another, Bill did eventually go and see them and Annie had seen them, and then they played the Acklam Hall. There was a sort of three-line whip out from Bill Stewart, and I was the one who couldn't go. He went, and he came back. In the following morning, we kind of reconvened, and he went, yeah, they were pretty good. And it was not much more than, yeah, they were really interesting than that at that point. Bill was getting very excited about them. Annie was getting very excited about them. And uh, then it kind of, I think Bill was kind of walking around saying, look, I've signed them. Um, whether that had actually been signed off properly by Blackwell at that point, I don't know. I think possibly unlikely. And I think it would probably have been Rob who either was called by Chris or he called Chris, who presumably would have been either in NASA at that point or maybe somewhere in Jamaica, saying, look, you know, this band, I've been to see them and I think they're really okay and, you know, we should proceed. So that's basically what happened. Literally, as soon as they had signed, we took it in terms, in, in terms of who actually went over to start the initial sort of PR ball rolling. Um, Rob did the first photo session, and that was with Sheila Rock, and that took all day, and they were on the beach, and the picture that everybody knows from that session, which has the three of them facing kind of forwards, and then you've got Adam on the far right, and there's a dog in the background. And that was the PR picture we, we chose, and that was literally the last picture the last frame of the last reel that day. Everybody was freezing cold. I remember Sheila Rock saying, I was frozen to the marrow shooting that picture or those pictures. And that was the one that was used. And that stood us in really good stead for, God, the better part of two years, I think. Chris Needs uh, was, the, was the first the UK journalists, UK journalist that we took over. I took him over. That was my turn at the airport we were then uh we then went and had they took us to lunch in some in a hotel in dublin that's all i can remember it was very good lunch i do know that the guinness's car wasn't particularly kind of car worthy um bonner didn't stop talking and everything was really cool and then we went to the gingerbread house the gingerbread house was where they rehearsed I think it was the south side of Dublin. Anyway, they were all there. So we met Edge and we met Adam and we met Larry. And he was incredibly pissed off that day, incredibly pissed off, because there must have been some dates coming up. Ireland had given them a certain amount of money, not very much, I don't think, probably cash. And he had had some... Uh, for his drum kit, he'd had some cases made up. For some mad reason, they'd arrived in the colour pink. And he was furious about it. 
and he was anyway so what was one thing another they did two songs in there and there was me and Needsy and McGuinness must have, yeah he was there and that was it and they played I swear this is true they played as if they were playing to a full house at Wembley Arena it was extraordinary it was just one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in my entire life they did 11 o'clock which had they recorded that with Hannett at that point I'm not sure I don't think they'd have recorded that or they may have done um, and then the other song they did I don't know I, I, it could have been Ancat Dove it, could have been, it would have been something off of the, the album that's for sure in its infancy um, and the power I, uh, it was just it was like having a it was, the place was tiny it was like sitting in, in somebody's living room or standing in somebody's living room and they were the other side of the fireplace the thing that you need to understand is this was a rehearsal. It was no more, no less than that. It was a rehearsal. There were two of us in the room. And the most remarkable thing was that it, it was as if they were playing to a full house at Wembley Arena, which they didn't do until 1984 um, on the fire tour. And... It was just two of us. McGuinness would have been there, so that's three of us. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it. It was the, just the sheer power. The it was el elating. That's that's the best adjective. I know Chris Needs and I came out of there and just stood in the in the fresh air outside, just shaking our heads. It was excruciatingly loud. But then you know, Edge playing Edge type guitar at that kind of volume that he he plays at in a very confined space is loud and they went for it they really really went for it it was extraordinary just fantastic just fantastic and then my first gig was the open anchor was it wherever it was it was seven people in the audience and um uh, again it was the same kind of thing that they played as if there were, they were playing to 10,000. Yeah. It was extraordinary. And then in the middle of the show, because don't forget, this is long before, you know, Edge has got 28 guitars being tuned for the next song by Roadie X or Y or Z. So, you know, a string gets broken, then he sits on his, his amplifier and his, you know, thingy, his Vox AC30, restrings the guitar, everybody gathers round and we sit and chat to, you know, Bono, Bono kind of holds court. That was what those early gigs were like. Don't, don't anybody misunderstand. But you, all you knew was you were seeing something and there's no point in saying, oh, yeah, I knew that was the next best thing. I knew they were going to be bigger than Led Zeppelin because that's total, utter bollocks. And I can fast forward a little bit further. I remember sitting with Larry in his kitchen this would have been a couple of years later, something like that. And we were just kind of shooting the breeze like you do. And his sister was there. I think Anne would have been around. And we were just chatting and everything. And I said, you know what? This is going to get pretty big, Larry. And he went, well, how big do you think? And I said, well, truthfully, I can see you playing Madison Square Gardens fairly soon. And I think we must have just come back off of an American tour or something. And he looked at me like I was completely crazy. They didn't 
he especially, I know, I know this for a fact, he didn't imagine it was going to get clearly as big as it evidently did after a, after X amount of time. So that's that's the beginning of it. And then Blackwell really doesn't enter the equation other than he kind of left everybody alone to get on with what we did. Um, but Chris came into the equation that summer and there was a series of gigs. Marley did, it was the Uprising tour, so he did Crystal Palace Bowl. And, and the way that worked was that McGuinness, you've got to understand, McGuinness and Ian Flukes were very, very clever people. Um, McGuinness managed the band, obviously. Uh, Flukes was their booking agent for Wasted Talent. They figured out that Blackwell would come in for those dates. Obviously, everybody wanted Chris to see this little band that we all thought a great deal of at that point. So what do you do? If you're the manager, you engineer a situation where you have your band playing not very far away from where the the star attraction of all Ireland is playing at Crystal Palace. So a gig was booked at uh, the Half Moon, which is a little pub in Herne Hill uh, in South London. Crystal Palace is South London, so Fast Car will take A to B in 15 minutes or whatever it is. So you get you two going on at the right time of the evening knowing that there's a curfew at Crystal Palace, then, you know, the chances are that Blackwell will go down and see this little band that we're all getting really excited about. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Chris walks in, he's wearing his flip-flops, and he's, I think he had a steel pulse T-shirt on or a sweatshirt, and the place was rammed. They had, it was all, a lot of word of mouth was going on about them. And it was as hot as Hades, and they played an absolute blind. That's how he first saw them play. Going back to those days, like at the, you know, 1980 and stuff, the, there wasn't like a mass, massive amount of people at the record company that saw it the way we did. And that's not gloating, because there's a lot of things like, you see, that don't happen. No, that's 100% correct. Um, certainly the... You know, they, they as a band couldn't get arrested at um, national radio. Everything was being driven out of two two quarters. Um, the first one was um, out of the press office, which was Rob and me. We didn't even have an assistant at that time. Um, and then gradually you became involved. <clears throat> so things started happening on a northern regional basis. And then... Um, because they were working an awful lot around the country, then, you know, that kind of started. And it, it all I can explain was it was a word of mouth thing. People started, you know, there were no front pages of magazines. That came later. Not everybody at the record company, they were all, I'm quite certain of it, say, oh, we were a big fan from day one. That's bullshit. They weren't. Part one of our U2 extravaganza with Neil Storey, the ex-press officer from Island Records back in the day. And I couldn't agree more with what he said there about not many people at Island Records being into them. I was there. I was one of those people. I'm not bullshitting. I was one of those people that was totally into the band. But there weren't that many. We kind of had internal struggles. But we totally believed in them. And that's why from the press department and regional promotion department, i.e. myself... We would take them to meet anybody and everybody and get interviews wherever we could that went out in the middle of the night, midweek or whatever, just to try and build a profile. 
I think they used to call it back in the day artist development. I don't think they have it now. So that concludes today's proceedings. I don't think there's time for Mank and the Yank this week, but we'll be back with it next week. I try and keep these uh, moments rock programs to around between 30 and 35 minutes. So we just about reached that. Hope you enjoyed the show. My name's Tony Michaelides. I'm your host. The podcast is called Moments That Rock, and we're a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts. Go back and listen to the Bowie special and the Cramps and uh, anything else that's in there. And we'll keep them coming week after week. So, we'll see you next week for more fun and frolics. (laughs) 